Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was thinking this morning, I thought, what can I talk to Kristen Conger about? And, and I thought, you know, what would two unladylike folks like ourselves put in our rush bag? It would probably be a copy of Robin Morgan's Sisterhood is Powerful. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some edibles. <laughs> yeah. Sorority Rush needs to chill down a little bit. Again, we've become so used to this bizarre production that we need to step back and take another look. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. Grab your edibles and feminist paperbacks because sorority rush season is upon us. Over the next few weeks, hordes of young women will be arriving early to college campuses in the hopes of winning their way into a Greek letter sorority. AD Pi, Phi Mu, Kappa Kappa Gamma, Delta Delta Delta, can I help you, help you, help you? And if you think they are winging it during this highly choreographed social elimination contest known as Sorority Rush, then you probably don't spend too much time on TikTok, where Rushies have been painstakingly documenting every step of their pre-Rush prep, including, yes, what's going in their Rush bag. Hey y'all, Rush For Me starts in exactly a week, so I'm going to do a what's in my rush bag. Hey y'all, so I'm rushing at the University of Alabama in about three-ish weeks, so I thought I would do a what's in my rush bag video. Hi, I'm Lainey, and I'm going through Rush next week at the University of Tennessee, and so I wanted to show you everything that is in my rush bag. What's in my Ole Miss 2023 rush bag? I have a body spray and a mini deodorant, hair mist and dry shampoo, baby powder and a hairbrush, lots of hair ties and a hair clip, as well as makeup wipes and oil blotting sheets. That's it for the first bag. This is the next bag. Why the fuss over rush bags? These TikTokers are packing their totes to the brim to ensure they can hoof it from sorority house to sorority house in the late summer heat without so much as an eyelash out of place. First impressions are everything. Funny thing about Rush, though, you're not supposed to call it Rush. Its proper name is Sorority Recruitment. And nowhere is it more intense than in the South, where the very first sororities originated. 
If you've fallen down the Rush Talk rabbit hole, you probably won't be surprised to learn that the University of Alabama, for instance, boasts the largest sorority recruitment in the country. And yes, I did watch and recap the Bama Rush HBO doc for the Unladylike Patreon if you're interested. More importantly, though... The Bama Rush Doc is also what introduced me to today's guest. I'm Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd. I'm the author of Southern Beauty, Race, Ritual, and Memory in the Modern South. And I explore and study white Southern women. Studying Southern white women is also what led Elizabeth to Sorority Row. Well, Sorority Rush takes place, of course, all across the nation. But it's in the American South, especially the Deep South, that has held on to what they call a frilly rush. And that is the high budget, high stakes, you know, lots of accoutrement. But it's, it's the cultural rewards that come that I believe are, are you know, that, that ripple out into society, into life after four years on, or four, or four or five or six years on campus. <laughs> and that it has more meaning. It's not just a networking organization. There are familial meanings, there are regional meanings, uh, racial meanings, and all of those are bound up and reproduced through this process. Also reproduced through this process is a word that shall not be uttered during sorority rush, and that word is segregation. The first ever large-scale study of the racial makeup of Greek organizations, your sororities and fraternities, was published just last year in the Yale Law and Policy Review. It found that, quote, almost everywhere, the Greek student body is disproportionately white, especially in the South. At big schools, including Auburn, University of Mississippi, Clemson University, and yes, the University of Alabama, Sorority Row is over 90% white. Combine that with the power Greek organizations hold over campus social scenes, student governments, and well-connected alumni networks. To paraphrase the Yale Law study, it's giving Jim Crow. And I should also note that Today's conversation is focusing in on sororities in the South, and the sororities in question are the 26 historically white sororities overseen by the National Panhellenic Association. Because for all of the broader cultural conversations and debates on whether these exclusive, expensive social clubs on campuses should even exist, judging by recruitment numbers... That siren song of Southern sororities is only getting louder. As for why that is and how we even got here, Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd has an answer. And her name is the Southern Beauty. the Southern beauty, and why did you want to research her? 
Well, so the Southern beauty, the contemporary Southern beauty, I should say, is the legacy figure that sort of mashes together the Southern belle and her more mature counterpart, the Southern lady. I argue that in the 20th century, the late 20th century, that these figures become sort of conflated in contemporary Southerners' minds and imaginations, but each one brings something to this figure. What is her purpose in the South, and especially in terms of the kind of, yes, gendered performance, but also cultural mythology that she really upholds. I talk about her as this focal point for white Southern nostalgia, for when there was, for when white Southerners had all the privilege, had all the power. I really look at at the Southern beauty as a gender performance of race, of whiteness, um, that, that these rituals, I look at three rituals in my book, Sorority Rush, the beauty pageant, and an Old South tourist production in Natchez, Mississippi. But it is one of many in which young white women uh, wear these hoop skirts as part of tourist productions that are supposed to gesture and create this mythic Old South for the tourist market. These are coming-of-age rituals, right? We're talking about this shift from childhood to adulthood that these performances that they're in come around like clockwork every year. There's a lot of social status that gets produced uh, in the context of these productions. And at the same time, they are crucial for white Southerners and others who want to sort of have this mythic moment of recreating an earlier time in Southern history when they had all of the the goodies. So there's a lot of cultural work uh, going on with these young women's performances that, frankly, uh, are treated as just frivolous. You know, it's, I mean, what could possibly be important about what young women are doing? And yet they accomplish a lot of important racial work and class work, too. Before we get deeper into sororities, how did you choose those three feminine rituals to investigate in your research? So I grew up in Mississippi and had been away uh, in graduate school in Texas, which has its own aesthetic, and had returned to the University of Mississippi to work on a master's in Southern studies. And at the time, uh, so, so I was sort of in the belly of the beast at Ole Miss, as it's known colloquially, one of the most competitive sorority rushes in the country. And at the time, scholars were, uh, scholars of region were really questioning about how does Southernness become coded as white Southernness? How did that happen when it's absurd on, on its face? I had also, you know, done my time in feminist theory and uh, et cetera in grad school. And so I was really curious with the intensity of this white femininity in the context of sorority rush, for starters. And it was so intense and so uh, competitive. And I just kept thinking, there has to be something more going on here than just choosing the next class of uh, Greek letter organization. I was curious about what was the motivation of these young women and 
what were the rewards? What were they getting out of it? And, and what were their feelings about this process? So how did you go about answering those questions? Uh, because I was interested in what exactly was going on with these productions, and I didn't have a big thesis yet, I knew that I wanted to interview some of these young women participants to find out what it was like from their point of view. And so I did taped interviews with over 60 participants in Sorority Rush and in beauty pageants and in the Natchez Confederate pageant of the Natchez pilgrimage. Uh, I also conducted ethnographic observation of the production. So I was actually in the house at the University of Mississippi, two different years uh, going along. Uh, they put me with a rush group. So I went around and I, and I went inside and observed all the parties for two years. And then I did it again at the University of Alabama a few years later. I, I don't think they would let me do that kind of research today. And yet I was, I had permission, but I was basically hanging out by the punch bowl observing, right? So I didn't have a camera. I didn't have a, a film crew with me or anything like that. Uh, so I had a lot of access. And then I read those against uh, my readings of Southern history, uh, gender history, et cetera. But one thing that was interesting was how reticent some of some administrators were about me doing this research particularly at the University of Alabama. They apparently told girls that I shouldn't, they shouldn't come and talk to me. But I had a steady stream of actives that wanted to talk to me and came and, you know, they're self-selecting, but came and, and did an interview with me so that I could understand their point of view. So, yeah, I did uh, multifaceted research on all of these productions. Did anything particularly surprise you from those interviews with the actives? There, I have to say, uh, I'm glad that I did it. I would not have understood the mechanics of Rush the way I do um, without talking with some of the actives. I also discovered that many of them had a lot of ambivalence about the exclusive nature of these Greek letter organizations. They were ambivalent, but they weren't upset enough that they withdrew. <laughs> Although I some did later, you know, um, there, there are uh, traditionally uh, many people who go inactive, maybe their senior year, they've had enough. But there was, there was more ambivalence than I would have expected. That's not something that you can discover just by observing the ritual. And why don't you think that you would be allowed to do that kind of embedded research today? Well, there has been a lot of uh, media coverage of the process of desegregation uh, or the lack of desegregation of many of the clubs. Uh, many of the groups have become leery of researchers uh, thinking that they're trying to do some sort of expose. It's interesting because I had sort of wide access in, in many cases, at the University of Mississippi, at the University of Alabama, there were some groups that did not want me to observe their parties, mm -hmm. were worried about you know, having too many adults in the room, sort of changing the mood of the party, and attempts to get the uh, actives to not come and talk to me, I think sort of backfired on them. It, it more like snowballed. I had more interviews than I could possibly conduct. 
You know what activity pairs perfectly with listening to your favorite podcasts? Putting together a brand new puzzle. Indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle solving experience. With a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzle puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preference or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly. I am torn between a 1,000-piece assortment of dogs and a classier industrial design Eames puzzle. Thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available, you can start small and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. And ladies, I have a new drinking ritual that I have to share with you. For the past few weeks, I have been swapping out my mid-morning coffee break for a mid-morning AG1 break. Sometimes I'll make myself a little refreshing smoothie, put my AG1 powder in, or I will just drink it with water, shake, 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 and it leaves me feeling truly more energized and more focused. This is not a detox or weight loss supplement, none of that stuff that unladies are not interested in, no. AG1 is an all-in-one foundational nutrition formula that makes it easier for me to cover my nutritional bases every day. It is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients that give major benefits like gut health, boosted energy, even healthier looking skin, hair, and nails. With AG1, taking good care of my body each day is really that simple. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash unladylike. That's drinkag1.com slash unladylike. Check it out. Was it merely happenstance that sororities started in the South, in Georgia, because you happen to have Wesleyan, the first women's college, which then became the sites of the first two, I believe, Greek letter sororities? Or is there a deeper significance to that regionality? I look back at the history of the way sororities were founded. They were founded in the slave South, and it's not really a coincidence. The Adelphian Society, later A.D. Pi, is the first at Wesleyan. But the very next year, the Philomathian Society, which is later Phi starts. And historians who have looked at this see it as part and parcel of the hierarchy of race and class in the antebellum South. The women's sororities start because they are shut out. Uh, they are excluded from the men's literary societies. So they form their own literary societies there on campus. But they become this 
uh, like the men's, they, they serve a sort of gatekeeping function of separating out the very best women that they want in their club uh, from others. And part of what they do is police each other in terms of being ladylike. That's very important. <laughs> <laughs> Written rules about anything unladylike uh, in terms of, of speaking. This is a way of distinguishing themselves from their social inferiors in their mind, right? You know, this is part and parcel of what happens in the slaveholding South. And what were some of the unladylike behaviors that were not allowed? Oh, well, there were so many. You know, novel reading, a noveling, that was that was uh, putting your mind to waste, um, reading novels, dancing, dancing uh, was frowned upon. So so there were, and the, the young women, unlike the men, didn't produce speeches, but they but they had sort of conversations, they called them, on these different thematic the theme, themes for the week. Yeah, it was very much a way of producing status through gendered behavior on campus. And it remains so today. You know, I, I start off my book talking about when hoop skirts were banned at the University of Georgia. <laughs> and a lot of people truly couldn't understand it. It had become such a normalized, naturalized thing that was part of campus life that they just couldn't imagine having Old South without people traipsing around in hoop skirts. So it's just cosplay of enslavement. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, any anthropologist will tell you that all traditions are invented at some point or another. So the fact that something is a tradition, that should be your first, you know, red flare. <laughs> well, and also, I think it's important for listeners to know that the hoop skirt ban happened less than 10 years ago, I believe. This is very recent history. Quick fact check on ladies. The hoop skirt ban happened in 2015, and it wasn't even a full-blown ban. Quote, the student leadership, staff, and advisors agree that antebellum hoop skirts are not appropriate in the context of some events. And those some events in question were frat parties like Old South Week, the Magnolia Ball, and fraternity Kappa Alpha's decades-long tradition of frat boys in Confederate gray pants, red suspenders, and gray cowboy hats because they had already been banned from wearing full-blown Confederate uniforms, riding through town on horseback to awaiting sorority girls dressed up in hoop skirts. And yes, all of them were white. Okay, back to my conversation with Elizabeth. When I first emailed you about setting up this interview, like the the image seared in my brain from childhood. I grew up in Athens, uh, home of the University of Georgia, and I still remember drives down Sorority Row and seeing just the lawns, front lawns filled with with the Southern beauty, with all of these young women, all these sorority sisters out, you know, in their Gone with the Wind cosplay and just thinking like, uh, even then as a as a child, it was, uh, I didn't really know what to make of it, <laughs> to be completely honest. <laughs> did it seem bizarre or did it seem romantic? Was it alluring? It was both alluring, but also I felt very much like a, a like a, a voyeur. Like there wasn't necessarily a desire to participate. 
No, but to watch, uh, it's a spectacle. What did the houses look like? That was created whole cloth over the years. And uh, along with many other parts of these productions, um, became more sort of faux plantation house as massive resistance grew in the mid-1950s. That was something I was fully unaware of. I had just taken for granted like, oh, sorority houses. They're these big, fancy, antebellum, plantation-esque mansions. Like that's, that's just where these rich white girls live, of course. That is a fascinating story. That did not come full-blown or even naturally the University of Mississippi is a perfect example. It, the sorority houses on campus were previously this collection of, you know, eclectic, different sort of suburban homes. Um, and it, it was in the mid 20th century, uh, during masses resistance to desegregation and the prospect of dismantling Jim Crow segregation, that the houses gradually, as they grow, you know, necessarily they have to grow with their the sizes of the clubs, but they take on, they become more alike and they become this, this, this faux plantation fantasia that we know today. You know, they started off, uh, some of them were little Tudor houses. Some of them were split levels. You know, there was not this homogenous sorority row that we know today. So that was a, a gradual thing, but it became, they quickly picked up the important elements and became uh, more alike than different. So you describe Sorority Rush as competitive femininity. How so? And what did it take to successfully compete? How do you, how do you, uh, uh, I guess, have a, a competitive edge with your gender performance? Right, right, right. Well, there's so much going into it. Essentially, you want to be able to perform and turn on a dime and perform this sort of bright sparkle of the bell. You know, you're a good conversationalist. You're cute. You're, you don't talk about things that are controversial. You are attractive. You're physically attractive. It's all about your surfaces, okay? Because they're making decisions on both sides in a very short amount of time based on not too much. <laughs> but they need to be able to do all of that, but also to, when the situation requires to exhibit that sort of more mature judgment and composure of the lady, okay? And above all, a lady, you know, would not embarrass her sisters. So part of what goes on during the uh, lead up to Sorority Rush is checking in and getting some intel on PNMs, that's potential new member, formerly called Rushies, on their reputations. Because, you know, if they're known as being too uh, wanton, shall we say, sexually, or just whatever. Uh, if, if they have a bad reputation, the word gets around, they will be dropped or, you know, ranked lower on an organization's bid list. And so it's very important that they be able to read the room and to produce this performance 
in a split second. And one of the most important things that they need to be able to do is to appear not to be mm. doing that. Uh, that, uh, that it appears not a strategy. Of course, they're all strategizing like crazy behind the scenes and sometimes not behind the scenes. You know, they're marketing themselves on TikTok and, and now they're marketing themselves directly to the organizations. And sometimes that pays off and sometimes it doesn't. But they need to appear to not uh, know about the back of the house, the backstage, what goes on on the active side, even if they do know it. <laughs> They're supposed to be this sort of veneer of innocence. You mentioned earlier how uh, University of Mississippi has one of the most competitive rushes. And obviously, you know, University of Alabama, Bama Rush. What makes Rush competitive? Like, is it simply in terms of the number of girls who are rushing or the intensity of the criteria? Uh, It's all of those things. It's the numbers. It's the reputation. It's the bragging rights. If you know that a particular campus is extremely competitive and you manage to land in practically any house, but especially a quote unquote top house, then you've really done something at least in that sphere. So it's uh, bragging rights. There's a lot of family pressure often to have a good rush. There is a hierarchy of sororities and what the top houses are. So what or even who determines that hierarchy? Well, that's a great question. From what I can see, that hierarchy is largely in the hands of young men. Uh, because the young women are competing with each other, but the prize that's waiting in the wings is the right dude, right? Um, Invitations to to parties with the desired fraternities, uh, the higher-ranking fraternities. And so the young men actually call too many of the shots, in my personal opinion, about this entire process. Because the young women, that's what they're policing each other about. Uh, They're also protecting their brand. If they're in a top house, they're invested in it, in in the collective reputation of the house. And so they don't want a sister dragging them down. And ladies, have you heard of Cozy Earth? I'll tell you someone who has. Oprah? That's right. Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's Favorite Things five years in a row, and now it's on my Favorite Things list as well. Cozy Earth crafts luxury goods that transform your lifestyle. And that sounds like a big promise, but on Ladies, I'm telling you so far, it's transforming my lifestyle because not only am I getting dreamy sleep in my Cozy Earth sheets, I am also getting extra comfort in my bamboo stretch knit pocket tee designed to be effortless, free-flowing, and get this, help prevent night sweats. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about night sweats, but listen, I need some help with my night sweats, and finally, Cozy Earth is here. All products come with a 10-year warranty. Cozy Earth has also provided an exclusive offer for Unladies today, up to 35% off site-wide when you use the code UNLADYLIKE. 
So head to CozyEarth.com and step up your day today. So head to CozyEarth.com and check out their bedding, loungewear, and bath essentials and enjoy up to 35% off site-wide with the code UNLADYLIKE. Well, the University of Alabama's Alpha Phi sorority chapter released the video. It shows dozens of young girls, all of them white, wearing booty shorts and bikinis, frolicking across a football field, jumping into a lake and blowing handfuls of glitter. The video comes two years after the university ordered changes to its sorority system when it learned about racial discrimination during the recruitment process. How did white sororities in the South get away with remaining segregated much longer, far long after schools were desegregated, but even, as you mentioned in Southern Beauty, much longer than fraternities as well? Because this sorority was performing just the way students and administrators wanted it to for so long. It was just perfectly fine. They loved it the way it was. It was, uh, in so many ways, a, a sanctuary from all those messy things like feminism and multiculturalism. <laughs> it was uh, where they could be, quote unquote, at home uh, with people just like them. It lasted so long because this image of the Southern lady had been used to justify, if you think about it, everything from enslavement to Jim Crow segregation to racial violence. This Southern lady on the pedestal, she was the, uh, as I talk about her, she was this, both the motif of the white South and its rationale. Okay, she was, without this mythic image, this symbol, everything fell apart, right? And so there was very little interest in changing that. This was where privilege was reinscribed, racial privilege, class privilege. And the only thing that young white women had to do to receive all those goodies was to perform this revered rendition of white womanhood. So essentially trading gender deference for race and class privilege in a little nutshell. Kind of scary, but very few people were interested in rocking the boat. And how did it happen for, for so long? I mean, well, administrators, again, looked the other way. Often these uh, clubs were offered sweetheart deals, you know, $1 leases for these giant mansions on campus. Administrations wanted the alumni support that came uh, with that process. So they were loath to... to argue with what what the clubs fell back on talking about freedom of association. But the same universities that, as we know, have a data point for every other aspect of campus life, somehow had no idea who were the members of the clubs and what their races were, although they could see it clearly before them. And so at the University of Alabama, Judy Bonner ultimately calls for an end to it only after she had been shamed by student journalists. And when students within some of the houses, when their, their alumni, their uh, adult members had been rigging the bid lists to remove uh, African-American 
potential new members from consideration. And some of the current actives raised their hand and said, aren't we even going to discuss the Black girl? Side note on ladies, Judy Bonner was the president of the University of Alabama in 2013 when all of this went down. Here's a clip from a CNN interview with the white sorority member who helped sound the segregation alarm. Melanie Gotts thought this year, her last at the University of Alabama, would be the year a black student would be invited to join Alpha Gamma Delta. The reason, she says, was a girl everyone was talking about. But when it was time to determine whether to let the girl join, God says sorority leaders decided a vote was not necessary. And of course, I say, are we not going to talk about the black girl? According to Gotts, the only reason the leaders gave for eliminating the girl was a, quote, technicality on her letter of recommendation. If she had been white, do you think she would have? Yeah, I do. And that's the problem. No doubt in your mind? Really, no. I don't think so, no. And that's sad. And so she, she really was forced into doing what should have been done a long time ago. And it still has not, it's, it's not, you know, the, the, the presence of a few minority members within a house of several hundred people is not a meaningful desegregation either. So what will happen with that remains to be seen. Popping in again to note that the number of young women participating in Bama Rush has only continued to grow in the meantime. I'm also curious if you have observed any signs of broader signs of resistance or a desire from the sorority members themselves to modernize and open up these clubs. I don't want to to paint with the, such a broad brush that like every single member of a, you know, traditionally white sorority is actively, you know, wanting to keep everything segregated. But at the same time, it it doesn't seem like a priority necessarily. That's right. Um, so the clubs for a long time, you know, sort of went through the motions of, for instance, mailing out uh, a rush pamphlet for the entire uh, campus to to all incoming students and thereby administration says oh well we they're welcome but no one shows up <laughs> so and so they were you know sh- sh- sharing privilege and sharing power once you have it doesn't come naturally and, and this is not to say that people are, are intentionally racist, you know, they don't have to be to be part of this more structural racism that comes from the way the process works. But in terms of changing the criteria of of what they're looking for in new members, that's what would have to happen. It would have to be less about looks and more about leadership. Uh, They would have to start ignoring, you know, that whole specter of which parties we're going to get invited to. That It would have to take some major shifts to really change the criteria for membership. What does this suggest to you about just the cultural power of the Southern beauty? Well, it suggests to me that she has been incredibly successful as a symbol and efficient. She accomplishes a lot while 
other people apparently aren't even realizing that she's an actor. She's still around long after many Confederate symbols have been dismantled or retired. And so in terms of as a symbol of region, she's extremely powerful and successful. And I'm also curious what you would say to the whataboutism argument of, well, there are Black sororities. There are even certain sororities specifically for Latino students. So why the push on these historically white Greek letter organizations? Certainly all sorts of organizations have been organized after experiencing exclusion from some other group. That's that's the exclusion is your keyword here. <laughs> the keyword of the day. And and the uh, Divine Nine is a very different collection of African American sororities traditionally associated uh, or started on uh, HBCUs. I don't talk about them at, at length in my book because studying them, many people have asked me, why didn't I do a, a comparative uh, study? They're really wanting me to do this comparison. But uh, that would not have answered my question that I started with about the role of feminine performance in reproducing um, this understanding of whiteness as Southerness. What did your research suggests about how the answer to that question might continue to unfold? Well, the way that young women are rushing today, it looks very different from when I did some of my research more near the turn of the 21st century. They're wearing, you know, shorter skirts. They're marketing themselves on TikTok. You know, they're becoming their own brands. They're sort of monetizing the college experience, (laughs) thinking about rush talk. And yet what's going on within the process is more similar than it is different. That has not been revamped. The method that they, you know, there's a lot of electronic methods used um, back in the old days, um, actives in the house who wanted a particular potential new member would put up posters around the house featuring pictures of this girl and why we needed to rush this girl, that sort of thing. And now, of course, that all happens electronically, for better or worse. And yet, what they're looking for hasn't changed very much. They, again, need to be fun and bubbly and personable. Smart doesn't hurt, although it's not a huge requirement. But they need to be a lady in certain scenarios. And that's where it's very pres- prescriptive. And so, so, so there's this dichotomy between what they're performing and making sure they have in their feminine repertoire for Rush to get into the right house and just their everyday life. There's, there's still this big gap. And the fact that you need to be able to do that to be a successful Rushy perpetuates these old, uh, really sort of archaic feminine rules. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you want to make sure listeners know? Well, I'm sort of thrilled by some of these young women who are speaking out against these different productions and and calling them for what they are. I'm thinking about Emily Mendelssohn's change.org petition, hashtag no more bells, trying to dismantle the Birmingham Bells, which is a, a group where young 
high school uh, age girls perform service at a plantation house, dressing up for the day in their hoop skirts. Uh, and there's a lot of status that accrues. And, and she basically said, you know, let's call this for what it is. It's playing plantation for a day, you know, saying this is not cool. Uh, there's another young woman who took the uh, Chattanooga Cotton Ball organization to task uh, when, when she was right in line to be the next cotton ball queen and refused on the same grounds, showing how racist and exclusionary the entire pr- production was. And of course, there are people who are part of the dismantle or ab- abolish Greek life movement. And so that's sort of exciting to see change coming from within. Uh, which is where it will have to start. Okay, and ladies, have I officially ruined Bama Rush? I realize there is so much about sororities at large in the South and beyond the South that we did not discuss this episode. And I would love for y'all to fill in those blanks. Send your emails and voice memos to hello at unladylike.co or you can DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Huge thanks to Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd. I highly recommend her book, Southern Beauty, Race, Ritual, and Memory in the Modern South. Mine is dog-eared and highlighted to the hilt. You can also follow Elizabeth on Twitter at ElizabethBBoyd1. And she's Ms. M-I-Z, Ms. Boyd on threads. Speaking of Bama Rush... If you want to join the Unladies Room Patreon, you can go listen to the episode, I Watched Bama Rush So You Don't Have To. I would love to just continue the conversation about that documentary because I am left with questions and not all of them are about Rush. Okay, not all of them are about Rush. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia is where you can go and subscribe for $5 a month. And I am grateful for every single one of you who is over there in the unladies room. So come on in. Everybody's welcome. It's not like a sorority, truly. <laughs> anyone can be an unlady. Therefore, anyone can join the unladies room. You can also follow Unladylike Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production. Executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? (laughs) Uh, Probably the fact that I wrote this book. (laughs) 